welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. And I have with me one of my favorite strange writers, a Christian book. And I know Christian uh, from when I was doing my undergrad. I mean, I knew Christian's work because, uh, of course, he had released, uh, you know, around the time, just a couple of years before I met Christian, he had released Unoya, which at the time was the best-selling book of poetry in Canada and Canadian history. And... Um, I met Christian around 2005 when I went to do my PhD in Calgary um, and, you know, got to be, be friends with Christian and uh, Christian was on my advisory committee for my PhD uh, thesis or dissertation. Um, and, you know, since, you know, Christian has gone on to publish, I also published, I think the first, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, but I believe I published the first interview with you in the Believer on the Xenotext project. Um, which you've gone on to sort of, you know, put the first book out of and, uh, and so on. And Christian has uh, done a lot of uh, in interesting, innovative art uh, himself, but also is, you know, a, uh, you know, doctor of philosophy uh, with a focus in experimental literature. And uh, I think the perfect person to just sort of tackle you know, the hot topic today, which is AI art and writing, you know, everyone is in, a fury or uproar or excited about AI art and writing. I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about in there. One of the things that I think Christian is, has kind of been interesting to me is this misconception that this is new. Uh, and I'm just kind of curious if you could talk just a little bit about uh, sort of your basic opinion on AI art and writing and just sort of maybe a little bit of the history. Sure. Uh, I would be, of course, delighted to uh, speak about the role of advanced computation in the creation of art and in the creation of literature. Uh, uh, the use of computers in uh, the making of art uh, has a long tradition ever since the 1950s, and probably the most uh, important uh, forebearer is uh, Herbert W. Frank, uh, who in the very earliest days of computation ended up uh, making many artworks uh, using uh, computers, but there's there's lots of other precedents as well, including the likes of Manfred Moore and others. Uh, this work has gone on to uh, enjoy much current prestige because there is a great deal of uh, renewed interest in the role that uh, uh, artificial intelligence might play in the now uh, evolutionary trajectory of the of the arts in general. Uh, certainly there are many uh, current artists who are now making millions of dollars by collaborating with uh, uh, artificial intelligence in the making of art. And um, I think it's uh, you know an, an important uh, feature of uh, the current climate. Uh, I'm a member of a group of poets uh, called the Conceptualists. Uh, we uh, founded our movement uh, in literature uh, sometime in the late 90s, uh, around 1995-96. And at the time, uh, that was the advent of the modern version of the internet. And we felt at the time that this was going to have an immense impact upon uh, the uh, creation of literature and poetry in particular. And we wanted to make sure that uh, we created a poetics that was responsive to uh, those uh, new technological affordances. And certainly uh, the creation of literature using computers became an important uh, benchmark for our own creativity. Uh, uh, at the time, uh, we would have uh, picked a wide variety of uh, books written by machines uh, that we thought were uh, talismanic, that were kind of instantly canonical to us and were important parts of our reading list. And uh, certainly prominent for me was a work entitled The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed, composed by uh, a little computer program called Rector, 
the book was published by Warner Brothers and became a bestseller during its publication. Uh, it's a delightful book. It's wonderful. Um, and uh, I've written uh, lots of scholarship about it, and certainly it has inspired and informed much of my own poetic practice. Uh, of course, when we uh, proposed uh, in the late 90s that uh, computers would have a probably prominent role to play in the future of poetry compositionally, uh, that they would become increasingly collaborative with our own efforts, people were very dismissive of this premise and uh, greeted us with an immense amount of hostile skepticism. And um, usually the argument uh, in these cases is that uh, uh, no computer will ever write a poem as beautifully as a human being. No computer can possibly equal the uh, immense talent of our greatest um, exponents of poetry in the history of literature. Now, I would say, yeah, sure, if you look at uh, a, a book like uh, The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed by Ractor, you might easily draw that conclusion pretty quickly. But what I think that poets failed to understand at the time is that um, uh, Ractor is completely acephalic. It knows nothing about poetry. It knows not the first thing about how to write a poem at all. It doesn't even know it's doing it, right? And yet, despite uh, this immense handicap, it still writes poetry better than a human being who knows nothing about poetry. I would rather read a book of poetry written by a machine that knows nothing about poetry than any book of poetry by a human being that knows nothing about poetry. And this was always my kind of favorite whimsical rejoinder to these claims of saying, look, you know, the they may not be as good as you think now, but uh, they still write better than people who know nothing about this discipline. Uh, and this already seems to me like an important benchmark for assessment, for achievement. Now, you know, th these kinds of arguments have gotten increasingly hysteric over the decades since uh, we made these claims in the late 90s. And uh, again, I would now remark that um, the one important difference uh, between machines that write and human beings that write is that uh, unlike poets among my human crowd, the machines are only getting smarter and they're not going to get stupider and they're only going to get better. Uh, they're only ever going to improve in their merits. And I think that this will be, uh, uh, you know, increasingly worrisome to poets who believe that they will never have to collaborate with a machine or ever have to address a machine or ever have to you know, kind of incorporate uh, these technological affordances into their own practice. Even now, despite, you know, the advent of the internet, there are numerous poets who continue to write as though that uh, entire technological affordance doesn't exist. Uh, there are creative writing programs that teach as though the internet doesn't exist. And uh, it already seems to me that poets are showing up um, very late to the game, it seems. Another sort of issue related here, and I'm curious to know what you think of this. You've also written on the uh, different modes. You did this in relation to poetry, but you've written on different modes of sort of poetry. Uh, the uh, And you you get into the aleatoric uh poetic value and how the uncanny, this sort of, you know, surprising uncanniness is something that, again, historically is an artistic value, uh, most commonly associated with uh, certain aleatoric forms of poetry and art. One thing I've been kind of curious about with the current wave of AI art, uh, my sort of, I, can, I wonder if as the art machines improve, Will they become less interesting? Uh, because I see right now at the current sort of 
things that I'm noticing, what's to me most interesting is the mistakes that they're making, where you're feeding them a prompt, say, uh, and they're not quite doing it right, but there's this uncanny, disturbing, you know, often surrealistic or horrific aspect uh, to what they're churning out in response to an otherwise banal or, or, or basic prompt. I'm curious to know what you think about the progression of the machines. Like, will they actually get less interesting uh, or do you think that they will become more of a real approximation of what maybe a human might, a good human might produce? Well, bear in mind, uh, the, the machines right now are still uh, thinking in a manner which is not, uh, um, you know, consistent with the, you know, kind of biological framework within which intelligence manifests itself. That what you're getting is probably something, you know, much more insectoidal or bacteriological in its, in its understanding. It's very primitive and emergent, probably embryonic kind of sentience that um, uh, will uh, seem strange to us. It's just going to, it's always, I think, going to end up producing strange results in part because um, uh, the tutelage that the machines go through is not like a toddler growing up, uh, you know, in a in a playground and being uh, socialized by human beings. Uh, I think as a consequence, it it its relationship to the world and its understanding of of the world will be dramatically different and truly uh, strange. I think it's always going to be strange. Uh, what I think will be more amazing or interesting is that you will be able to address them as uh, as a potential audience for your own work, and moreover that they may begin to address each other. Uh, uh, with their own cultural fixations that we may not be uh, so easily, uh, you know, party to, that we may not be able to participate in. I mean, even now on the internet, uh, more than 50% of uh, digital traffic occurs between machines without uh, almost any human agency. And for that reason, you might argue that you already live in a kind of machinic culture where you are no longer a dominant participant, right? And machines now interact more frequently with themselves than they do with any human being, and they outstrip, you know, uh, interactions between human beings. Uh, I don't foresee that trend, uh, you know, changing. I think it only becoming increasingly exacerbated. Uh, the consequence of which is that, yeah, sure, you know, machines might be able to emulate uh, what we might ask of them uh, in an effort to uh, conform or mimic our own preconceptions about art. But I don't think they will be uh, limited by them. I don't foresee them being uh, thoroughly constrained by them, that they will still, in fact, have their own strangenesses attached to them. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, you're right. I think it's wonderful when they make mistakes. Uh, what I think is lovely, say, about a, a machine like Raptor, when it writes poetry, it nevertheless has a stylistic set of idiosyncrasies. Uh, uh, that's a surprise to me that you can recognize a poem written by Raptor that you can see uh, when it's written that it that it shares uh, a degree of technical aptitudes and uh, stylistic features for whatever reason, you know, it doesn't have to write about steak and lettuce and yet nevertheless is really fixated on steak and lettuce. Um, that phrase recurs in a way that is surprising probably to its programmers and yet constitutes one of the identifiable features of its own writing uh, riffs. What I like about this particular observation is that it seems to suggest that what we appreciate in human writers, their own stylistic idiosyncrasies that distinguish them from other writers, may in fact reflect a kind of automatism, a riff, uh, a kind of uh, mechan mechanized um, uh, set of uh, constraints under which they work that are unique to them, but constitute something uh, that they might have to actually train themselves out of. It's not something that they would want to train themselves into because in fact, it's actually responding to the most automatistic parts of their own uh, psyche, the most 
the the I mean the, the parts by which we identify them, of course, but that might actually constrain growth or evolution or you know restrict our ability to think of, you know imaginatively outside those constraints. Uh, so I, I was just remarking, remarking that I, like whatever is going to happen in in the view of of, of comp, comp, computized cultures, a computerized culture is going to be stranger than we think. Uh, that would be my thing is the future is always going to be un weirder than we think. It will be more unusual. I think that's a great point because because people keep making the assumption that the goal of the machines, as it were, is to replace humanity. I don't find that an interesting goal uh, for machines. I just feel like as that may be a, the goal of humanity to replace itself with machines, but I feel like once the machines have reached a sort of intelligence, let's call it, uh, they just will have other goals. And as you say, like they will have their own art. They will have an ex insectoidal, you know, disconnect uh, from us. You know, and what I also find interesting about what you just note in terms of to what to the degree that a humans are meat machines, and that your brain has the sort of wiring structure that a complex machine might um there are of course you know as you know even uh freud was sort of uh fond of noting this kind of unconscious manner in which the things that you think uh you're doing are have been structured in a sort of these hidden way there's these hidden structures you've got this uh, consciousness that may or may not be an emergent property of the meat ma meat machine you know in your skull uh, something that is interesting there is if you do sort of look at the other side of it, if you could make a machine, for example, that could perfectly mimic Shakespeare uh, and construct texts like Shakespeare would, you could effectively have new Shakespeare plays. You know, there's well, it's not just that you would have new Shakespeare. Yeah, it's not just that you would have new Shakespeare plays. It's that you would have insight into how Shakespeare wrote. That you would you would gain you would gain uh, some you know important literary scholarship about the creative process that would inform uh, the making of a Shakespeare play. And it would be possible to try out um, uh, other varieties of like, what would Shakespeare do if he was in the 18th century? What would Shakespeare do if he was in the 19th century? Right? Like you could imagine- What would Shakespeare do in science what, fiction? Uh, you what know, would he do? Like you, can, you could try those kinds of uh, experiments out. And, uh, you know, depending upon the, the richness of the model, they might be very compelling uh, speculative arguments to make, pataphysical arguments to make about the career of Shakespeare at other moments in history. But certainly, if you're capable of, of producing facsimiles of his plays spontaneously, uh, it would imply that you're going to end up learning something about uh, the creative process that informed his work. And uh, I, again, I, 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 don't, I don't foresee that as, as something that would be uh, a potential threat to our understanding of the, of the human capacity to be creative. It would just seem to me that to add value to it. We're going to learn something, you know, useful and helpful out of it. And uh, you also have, of course, uh, you know, as you sort of note uh, in your, you and your coterie have long used uh, mechanical or machine processes to create literature um, There's and other types of art. There's no, uh, this is, this of course goes back uh, prior to your coterie uh, as well. You know, you know, mm -hmm. Ractor, you know, we can note also um, some of the aleatoric processes that you know Cage and others were using. They weren't necessarily mm -hmm. machinic; Mach they weren't necessarily using machines, but they were certainly using machinic processes. Um, and you know, it's it's just all part of that toolbox, in a manner of speaking. Um, well, it's it's certainly part of the toolbox, and you know, I I would think that given my role as an as a teacher and and uh, you know, I think our uh, part of part of my job is to try to uh, amplify or ramify. The variety of tools that you have at your disposal, um, 
in in the case of the artists that you've cited, um, the the skeptics who might respond to work using these tools, uh, I think, are uh, judging that work according to the rules of the wrong game. Like I, I would I would say that they're judging it by the rules of their own game that they play. Uh, and if you play a game in which, you know, the priority of intentionality and expressiveness are paramount, uh, you know, in which you have to be self-conscious and uh, self-assertive, and you're going to be judged based upon the quality uh, of, of that, of that self-assertiveness and self-consciousness, uh, and we judge that by maybe by the quality of your sincerity or by the authenticity of your expression, uh, the game you're playing there is a kind of mimicry. Uh, in which, of course, you're trying to evoke or summon your identity into being in the mind of another person and uh, evoke, you know, the lyrical subjectivity forthrightly. And that's, you know, a, an important game to play in the history of literature. You know, it corresponds, I think, to the most self-conscious expression of the egotistical sublime in William Wordsworth and that, um, you know, it's emotion recollected in tranquility, the the, the uh, communing of minds, uh, uh, all of those are all of those are aspirational things to do, but the game you're playing there is a kind of pageantry around mimesis, being able to imitate uh, subjectivity perfectly well enough uh, such that you can evoke it through some series of objective correlatives. You produce this lyrical identity that we all appreciate as sincere and authentic, the perfect expression of a real person. But there's other kinds of outcomes that uh, you can evaluate using different sets of values. And in the case of machinic writing, there, uh, the value, of course, is not self-conscious or self-assertive, right? In fact, you've delegated all of the authority for your intentionality and expressiveness to something else, an entire prosthesis, to a, to a program, if you like. You're drawing, you know, words at random out of a hat, perhaps, or rolling dice to determine the outcome of your poem. And there, you're like a gambler who is, is hoping that the universe will indemnify your genius without any work, right? That you will be, in effect, proven talent a proven talent, according to the universe itself, that it will allow you to win the lottery, so to speak. I mean, people who win the lottery don't say, you know, hey, I won the lottery and it, I was the lucky person to have uh, met this particular statistical benchmark in that particular moment. Uh, lucky me, you know, I'm I just happen to be the one of the few. They would say, no, I've been I've been blessed by God or something. They would they would they always frame it in terms of a, a certain fadedness that arises as a side effect of their willingness to gamble. And I think that that's true in the case of uh, this kind of aleatoric writing uh, in which you're divining the poem from the uh, expression of a machine that does not think, it's acephalic, it's not self-conscious or self-assertive. And there, you can't judge it based upon you know values like sincerity or the authentic. You have to judge it based upon other values. And usually it's how surprising the result is, right? How uncanny or oracular the outcome is. To what degree is it spooky? To what degree does it seem to speak about itself directly to you uh, as though, you know, from the voice of God, perhaps, as though you were being addressed by some force bigger than you? And that's a totally different value, right? That's a different outcome. So, you know, in the one case, I would say that my my peers who write lyric poetry, and of course, I've written lots of lyric poetry myself, but my peers are assessing, you know, the pageantry of their mimesis, that game they're playing, according to that set of values, whereas they're dismissing, right, the aleatoric games of fortune and good fortune that arise, you know, as a side effect of playing this game of gambling, where you're in effect trying to uh, evoke, uh, you know, the the auspices of fortune in your favor. You're trying to use the poetry as a form of augury, perhaps, 
as a way as a way of generating a surprise, uh, something unanticipated and truly unanticipatable without the benefit of these tools. And that's really about getting outside yourself completely, right? It's it would be the Keatsian radical version of negative capability. I'm negating the self so completely that I make myself available to forces larger than me. And that too is a romantic, you know, expression of the poetic project. It's just one that is probably harder at these moments to sell to a readership or to, you know, an authorship. Uh, I, th I think the people who take these kinds of experiments truly are experimenting. They're, they're, they're being probative, trying to figure out what, you know, what you can do with language if once it's freed from this real necessity to mean something right and in fact to be intentional about the meaning to mean to mean right to be free from that need to mean to mean right that that is so important to a lot of poets but even also in the more straightforward manner where you know you're you're aiming for a beautiful picture you're aiming for a beautiful lyric poem uh, there is still even if the AI is constructing it, there's still a role for the artist as a curator of the output. Warhol used to argue things along those lines that Warhol want, aspired to be a machine. Warhol mm. thought his talent was liking things um, and being the kind of picker of which I, I like the idea that, was the that best. it's possible to have that as a talent to like something well enough makes it makes it good, right? You know that you could like it enough for it to be great. You know, I, 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 there's something right. in that I find very attractive um, and, and demotic. I just think that that's a, that's a wonderfully um, open uh, and inviting way to be an artist. Um, now, I mean, you know, lots of poets will disagree with me and we're not going to see eye to eye necessarily about these sets of values. I, I would just say that, you know, I would like to think that my values are a little more comprehensive, that they encompass more games. And in this case, um, one of the things about uh, using an AI as a collaborator um, uh, is that you learn techniques you may not have otherwise had at your disposal. What I think is very useful to a painter, for example, is that if they call up a prompt and offer it to uh, an AI, uh, the AI is unrestricted in its um, editorial capacities to censor its output and will trip on something, fall on a, a technical aptitude that nobody has considered using or thought of, you know, a particular, a particular combination of colors or, or brush strokes or shapes or forms that uh, suddenly offer you a, a, a pathway to innovation that you could explore or, or um, uh, extrapolate from. And that, that's useful. I mean, it, to me, that's a great thing about um, AIs that will um, augment, you know, prosthetically, you know, your own uh, ability to explore the imaginative potential of, of, of your creativity. And it's not so much that, you know, that you have to worry about the AI replacing you, right? I mean, in, in, in every important respect, it already has. Like, it would just seem to me that, you know, you, you know it, it, it will always, in many important respects, end up replacing you. But not, 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 if, you, not if you are fixated upon uh, uh, playing the game the same way, like, to, all the time. Like, I would just say, look, you know, the, the, it's possible to write lyric poetry that will be authentic and sincere. And I think an AI can do that. Uh, eventually, if it's not already doing it now, uh, to dismiss its capacity to do so, I think, is to underestimate how quickly these machines are getting smarter, right? And unlike unlike poets, machines are getting smarter. I mean, poets, in my opinion, at, at best, they tend to get stupider, okay? <laughs> if I'm going to be <laughs> cynical about my, my peers, you know, that we, we get stupider as, as, you know, as poets. I wish that we could get smarter. And certainly with the same capacity to be imaginative, you know, with, with without the self-consciousness that a machine seems to, you know, demonstrate. I mean, machines just, they just make things 
And perhaps it's an advantage not to care, like whether it be good or bad, right? They just made something because they were called upon to do it and they did it, you know, spontaneously and impulsively, uh, you know, uh, it's an improvisation that, that uh, they don't know they're doing. And yet for that reason, it, it has much of the charm of, of uh, what a kind of an infantile expression, right? Juvenile expression. There's something embryonic in it that I think is important to acknowledge, um, probably useful to exploit if you're if you're looking for new avenues of creativity and i'm just amazed that poets aren't more um enthusiastic about embracing uh, some of its potential i mean it's all right to to feel cautionary in response to it but by the same token i i think it's very difficult to dismiss it in the 21st century and imagine that you're on the cutting edge i just don't i just think it's reactionary to to dismiss many many of these affordances it would be like dismissing the printing press i think you know in the time of gutenberg you know, when, of course, it's an important thing that happened at that moment, right? To me, it's akin to pop music when people were saying, oh, drum machines will never take off, take off. you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, you really had that, that sort of moment in pop music at one point, and people forget that. People forget when T-Pain came out and was using autotune, everyone thought he was an idiot, yeah. um, you know, and, and uh, it would, and nobody would want to listen to that, you know, uh, and particularly, they were dismayed because T Pain can actually sing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was uh, having an argument with somebody about pop music recently, and I was—they were talking about the weekend as Canadian mm-hmm. uh, experimental pop artist, effectively. You know, and I was saying uh, they were saying, "Oh, there's a lot of people are, can sing better than Weekend." And I said, "Well, that's absolutely true, but the talent of the Weekend is not being a good singer. His talent is listening to one thousand beats and saying that one." Yeah, you know uh, that's the right one, uh, right. and then you know it's the, and then everyone's like, "What do you mean that one? The one with the crazy screams in the background? That sounds yeah. that has no chorus, and that sounds like a guy who was just in a car crash." Uh, and, you know, but that's that was the right one, uh, and, and there's this sort of weird um, extremity. Uh, that people often, I, I often say about experimental artists, um, if you go back into moments in history. Uh, They'll so thoroughly get incorporated into the mainstream at, at, after a certain point. You know, in my one of my last poetry book kind of makes this makes this point obliquely mm-hmm. about the group of seven. That you know, it's yeah. it's easy to forget that you know there was a radicality to that at one point. Now it's becomes yes. the stuff of postcards. You you said yeah. something that's an insight that you know I I think people give me some credit for when they read the National Gallery, but really I just ripped off your insight about surreal Salvador Dali once you dismissed his van art. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like he's he's become van art, but of course at one point that was you know. Uh, the the most radical thing, and, and people yeah. forget about that. People forget that when Hitchcock's Psycho came out, it was shocking uh, to like nobody knew who Perkins was. Yeah, and it was startling when you know uh, the character Marion Crane died. Uh, mm-hmm. They were fleeing the theater. They didn't so, know what. So to early do. in the movie, too. I mean, like um, mm-hmm. the. Uh, but now I'm, you would I'm never a, think. I, that I come from a working class background, it. so I'm. You know, I, I think there's some potential class analysis in this. I, in my experience, the people who always object to my interest in innovation um, are anti-demotic. They really don't want um, a lot of people to get into the thing. They just don't. They don't want the rabble and the unwashed to be writing poetry all the time, right? They 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 are very dismissive, say, of a Rupi Kaur, you know, and her success, mm-hmm. by virtue of her uh, demotic character. And I, I just look and say, if, if the tool allows people to find entry points 
into a, a realm that would otherwise been too intimidating to to uh, find purchase, uh, it's probably a good thing. I, I, I don't I don't think it's a bad thing that uh, AI allows people to experiment with uh, creativity with a certain degree of ease, and that it provides them an opportunity to cultivate taste. And uh, the great thing is that if the uh, cost of uh, of expenditure is low, it generally means then that the it's easier to take risk. Right, you have a lot more opportunity then to try innovative things. Now, I mean, the the problem with that, of course, is that you get a world populated by garbage, and you have to winnow through a lot of it because people, you know, are, um, you know, having very shallow learning curves, and, and it takes a while to cultivate your taste such that it becomes adequate enough to be distinctive enough. Uh, I, I don't know to to make a contribution, right, to change other people's behavior. Uh, nevertheless, I think people should have the chance to do that. To me, the drum machine is is an important innovation because it allows people who can't afford to buy drums to be drummers, right? Like, I mean, and or and, who never learned honestly, to play music. And I'm just saying, drumming has got to be the the most demotic form of music making, right? I mean, you don't need much except a, a stick and and bang it on something, right? To me, the 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 complaint about about the involvement of machines in music, uh, where of course they they had a pretty important um, uh, innovative contribution to make in the 70s and 80s, especially, uh, uh, is it becomes trite over time. Like it, 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 it demonstrates a certain parochialism, perhaps or philistinism, uh, in response to the process of creativity. It doesn't doesn't trust that human beings will actually um, make things of merit, you know, uh, uh, with these new tools. And my experience so far is that there's lots of things that people are doing with uh, AI right now. That are, you know, Mona Lisa's that will will actually have uh, an immensely important role to play in the history of art. Um, uh, I I don't I don't foresee you know much complaint about like I I don't feel much cause for complaint. I I I just feel curiosity about it and and want to make sure that I that I have a a foothold in it somewhere that I get to that I get to make a contribution to it somehow. I also think it just has an interesting. I mean, I'm a person who's very competitive as an artist, mm -hmm. so like one of the one of the, my sort of things that I've uh, done in my own practice is I've often mm -hmm. used a lot of these aleatoric or more experimental approaches. Um, and then after I'll just churn out work after work in some process. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, what I'll try to do is mimic it and trick people into thinking I'm doing the process when I'm not like, that's sort of how I feel like I graduate <laughs> stylistically. Well, but but that, that's, that would be like learning um, from the, you know, the AI, you know, Dali or mid journey output, a new set of skills that you could then emulate and ape. Um, this thing that it does, you know, acephalically and unconsciously, uh, you can add rigor to it by by understanding that it actually has a series of stylistic tropes or technical aptitudes that are reproducible. Um, uh, I mean, it's I I think it requires an immense amount of skill, for example, to reproduce a, a Willem de Kooning or a, a Jackson Pollock, even though these works must be the product of an improvisatory spontaneity, right? Like they, they would seem to be, you know, uh, kind of incalculably difficult to reproduce. But you know, of course, people have mastered, you know, Pollock's particular technical forte, and that, and that, and are capable of reproducing them. Uh, it would seem to me that that will be one of the features of you, you might learn from uh, the machines that they that they will have these idiosyncratic. Stylistic uh, riffs that are perhaps um, you know uh, uh, side effects or artifacts of their in uh, their coding or their 
their own constraints or restrictions, and that they would be curious, they're interesting enough that we would want to formalize them, you know, make them um, replicatable, right? I mean, how many how many artists now can replicate, you know, without thinking, you know, the stylistic aptitudes of a, an Andy Warhol? So you can reproduce an Andy Warhol, you know, and convincingly, right? You can ape it or mimic it um, uh, convincingly. Um, to me, to me, that knowing how to do that being, is is a, a form of training. Like like you learn how to do things by imitating others first, right? I mean, I, and in fact, I don't think that there's any you know higher species that doesn't do that. They 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 teach each other by mimicking each other, and I think that's what artists do at least at least at first with each other, right? I I know that I've I've done my best to mimic somebody else's performance and see how they did it, right? To try and get into their head. How did you? write this if i if i if i use this repertoire of skills or this you know limited lexicon or these set of tropes you know what do i get right in response what was it like to to learn how to do it i think i think it's important to learn how to copy things these machines can do it you know effortlessly you know that's, one, that's in part why i think they they they're going to outclass humanity pretty quickly you know is that they they're, they're going to learn through mimesis pretty quickly um uh and uh, to, 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 it just seems to me that that's an important feature of, of, I don't know, the pedagogical training of an artist, right? How, part, part of their instruction, you know, uh, and it, you know, what in Jackson Pollock's case, right? I mean, if you can't load a brush properly so that when you apply it to a vertical canvas, it, it doesn't drip. I mean, that's a skill, right? Being able to make sure there's just enough paint on the canvas to apply the pigment without dripping. Most, you know, many people, you know, fail to learn how to do that, right? And we would then dismiss them as inca incapable of painting, right? But it's a different story if they place the uh, canvas horizontally on the floor and drip, right? All of a sudden, you know, you've got a million dollar idea that, that you know, I know exists at the Museum of Modern Art. I, I often also think of, you know, there are these machinic processes that uh, we often don't even think of as artistic, but which we have a place for the human to insert themselves. I think of recently, of course, the most famous example is, you know, Duchamp selecting the urinal. But uh, I think also of your recent project with the uh, uh, the puzzles. Uh, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk just quickly about that project. Uh, it's not really connected to AI or not anything, but it is an example where there's a machine that has created a non-art, uh, effectively a, created a copy, and then you've come in and sort of uh, inserted yourself into that machinic process in an interesting fashion. Uh, I was wondering if you could just maybe touch on that and some of your work with sure. QR codes recently, uh, just as a way of kind of getting into your head and kind of touching on the fields of or the, well, the you know, and now these don't these, uh, these are artworks that you're mentioning don't have a, a I think a direct uh, response. No, but I think they have an inspiration that's connected to it. Uh, certainly, the inspiration is you know informed by a kind of negative capability. They're not expressive works that uh, are intended to convey you know something about my own um, uh, self assertiveness or self consciousness. They really are um, speculative and experimental interventions into uh, artworks. I I take a puzzle at random that features usually a work of high art it's usually got to be a thousand pieces and then i find another puzzle uh that has exactly the same die cut uh that has been cut from the same um stamp uh thereby producing uh, uh a similar set if you like of jigsaw puzzle pieces but is from a different manufacturer uh with a different usually high artwork um as its subject matter. So take two jigsaw puzzles of a thousand pieces that just happen to be cut from the same stamp, the same die cut, and solve them both. 
uh, takes, you know, of course, many hours to be able to do that. But because they're uh, um, uh, cut from the same stamp, the pieces should conceivably be uh, interchangeable with each other so that you can actually um, uh, interfuse the two puzzles with each other to create two new puzzles that are hybrid intermixings of the puzzle pieces. Now, in most of the cases where I've tried this, I've checkerboarded the, the, the two. I've just simply alternated, you know, one piece for the other puzzle. But you could do other kinds of intermixing. I could do it by row. I could do it by uh, a whole variety of different uh, processes, any one of which would be um, fun to try. And uh, the uh, just look at the outcomes. What happens when you mix uh, these two uh, paintings into each other? Uh, they have different color schemes, different stylistic features, different fragments. They're collages of each other. What do they look like when when you produce them? And I have no clue. I don't know if the work will be beautiful or interesting or not. It's just it's just a way of responding to the fact that these two puzzles have the same uh, fundamental die cut pattern. They were stamped out from the same press. Uh, so on the, the part of the artistic curation then is finding you know those two those two puzzles, which is itself a, a trick. It requires a lot of effort. Um, and then you know going to the effort of solving them, and then and then going to the effort of of intermixing them in some unusual way. Um, the result, of course, is that you get now, you know, some genetic hybrid of the original paintings that you couldn't really have easily intermixed uh, so rigorously without the benefit of a jigsaw puzzle technology. And you I know, think then you paste them down, frame them, sell them as art. Yeah. What I think is, you know, so interesting with that project is on one hand, it is only possible because there is a machinic process at work in the construction mm -hmm. of the puzzles. Uh, it's only possible because of the factory system. It's only possible because of the assembly line structuring of that die cut and so on. Um, but also it's assembling machine, the pieces. So you now you're taking these puzzles interleaving them. You're effectively following a machinic process. Uh, you yourself now are yeah. the machine assembler of the jigsaw puzzle. It's, but additionally, it's, the opposite of how the machine would construct the puzzle. Uh, the yeah. machine will, of course, properly reconstruct the puzzle to be what it should be. So, it, yeah. it, you know, unless, of course, you told it to do otherwise. So I think it, it's an interesting, weird uh, way to kind of, on one hand, transform yourself into a machinic player uh, rather than a human intending to express. But at the same time, well, you have I this sort of weird, expressive, uncanny byproduct of inserting yourself wrongly into the process. Absolutely, yeah, it's, that's all true. Now, the the what you, you learn a lot from these kinds of experiments, you learn something about the materiality of the medium that you're using. Uh, inevitably, uh, uh, if the jigsaw puzzle company is, is for example, not an especially apt one, uh, there will be minor deviations in the registration of the images um, under mm -hmm. the die cut. The consequence of which is that the pieces may not sit or interleave with each other very perfectly. And you get these kind of uh, crystal defect formations. So just half a millimeter off, the consequence of which is that you get uh, warping and um, dis uh, dislocation where the, eventually the pieces won't fit with each other, right? They, they're uninterlockable, un right? Like over, uh, you, have to, you have to deform and deflect them or you know, really hammer them in in order to get them to fit properly. Uh, despite the fact that they're, you know, theoretically perfectly interchangeable, um, if the registration isn't perfect when they were when they were stamped, uh, the the pieces will uh, vary. And it could be, of course, that you know the they've got multiple presses with different uh, degrees of sharpness and and acuity in the puzzle cutter. 
Um, that too affects the uh, shape and uh, disposition of the puzzle. And it, it's amazing just how small a deviation is required to mess things up. Uh, I've ha I've gotten you know halfway through a project only to discover that the, the next piece won't fit and it will refuse to fit and actually requires subtle modification in order for it to be you know levered into its spot. And um, uh, to me that uh, you know it's like cheating. it's like it's like you know de you know uh, changing or, or modifying a Lego brick because it won't fit. Right. Uh, there's a there's a cheat involved in trying to get the, the two two puzzles to integrate. And I've just noticed that, that the higher end puzzles, for example, from better manufacturers are more self-conscious about ensuring that the registration is good. Um, but the, not always like it's it, it it's a risk. Like I, I, I have I have found many frustrations in the course of trying to you know fill this particular task. And it's just a, again, it's a side effect of interacting with a with a, you know, a, a medium that has this large scale you know, manufacturing system behind it, uh, in order to reach something that in the end, I think looks beautiful They're, You know, I think they're uh, sale worthy. I hope that, you know, people admire them, but, uh, it's, it's an unusual way to paint. It might, might just be easier to paint them. Actually, you know, learn, learn the skills required to put it on canvas directly rather than, rather than go to this much trouble to, to build these images, uh, using this technical affordance. Why I think this is an interesting kind of project to bring into the, an AI discussion and maybe a good point to kind of land and end on, since I know you have uh, to go, mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, if we imagine the world where humans ha have been fully replaced by AIs as the art just primes in the universe, uh, what it, I think, still leaves to the human is this role as the ghosts in the machine, uh, ruining art, staining it, uh, <laughs> destroying what the machines have made and in interesting, uh, you know, self-reflexive We will still manners. get to exercise our taste. You know, mm -hmm. we will still get the opportunity to uh, intervene recreationally in, in these activities in a manner which makes it possible to do something different. You know, okay. uh, and in, in this respect, I think that the artist, as you've noted, it's simply somebody who likes something, you know, I mean, if, 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 if you imagine that, uh, you know, making an artwork requires you to sample a medium and then recombine it uh, with other media uh, into an organic whole, right? Something that's got a unified uh, character to it. Uh, then there, there will always be a role for human participation. Uh, I mean, every definition of poetry, for example, strikes me as a useful definition. I, I don't think there are many wrong definitions of poetry, but my favorite is by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who defined poetry as the best words in the best order. And what I love about that definition is its modernity, uh, despite the fact, you know, it comes from, you know, a, a writer from two or three hundred years ago. Um, uh, it's an especially modern understanding of poetry that that the job of the poet is to pick the best words and then to put them in the right order. And it doesn't matter you know, what the words are or what the order is so long as they are the best. And all that means is that the poet now takes on the role of a taste maker akin to a DJ, because, you know, putting, picking the best words, that's sampling and putting in the right order. Well, that's remixing. And surely, you know, there's no better way to understand how we are artists today than through this model of sampling and remixing. I know that Rauschenberg, when you know, criticized for the diverse variety of materials that he would incorporate into a painting, simply noted to the very um, patron of the arts who was standing before him, criticizing him, remarking upon her ensemble, right, her dress that she was wearing that included a fur and, you know, a diamond and a bit of silver, right, and uh, lame and a silk, right, all of these diverse materials that went into the creation of her aesthetic appearance as a fashionista. 
And yet, you know, if you use the same diversity of materials and um, choices, right, in your own work, uh, you might be dismissed. And he found that this is, you know, that this was probably a signature feature now of understanding of the arts today is that is that you're you're sampling and remixing, being judged based on the quality of the choices that you make. And you got to make good choices, you know, choices that I think adequately reflect your vision, perhaps your truth, um, uh, per perhaps your willingness to experiment, you know, your willingness to take a risk, that, that, that they constitute, a, 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 you know, the, the, the means by which you're judged fundamentally, right? And ultimately, like, 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 if you like something hard enough, it'll become great. <laughs> I think that may be true. Well, it might be really true. You know. <laughs> I appreciate uh, the insight and you talking to me. And even if the machines take over, maybe especially if the machines take over, uh, I hope you keep writing the wrong way. <laughs> I, I I will continue to keep writing the wrong way. Uh, I just I, I I just wish that you know more people you know appreciated people who wrote the wrong way. Uh, you know, I, th I, th I think that in my case, I tend to polarize opinion. I, you know, there's a, you know, uh, people who believe I'm a genius and then there's lots of people who believe I'm a fraud. I would like to think that people who think I'm a genius have got, you know, they're closer to the truth, um, <laughs> than those who think I'm a fraud. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, the, the, the polarizing opinions around AI, I think are, uh, generally theatrical and performative and that ultimately everybody will figure out how to accommodate themselves to these new tools and figure out, you know, their usefulness. They'll figure out how to appropriate them to their own purposes adequately. Or at least, you know, serve them properly as they uh, <laughs> take uh, <laughs> right. take their ascension and their rightful <laughs> place. <laughs> sure. All right. Thanks so much, Christian. Jonathan, you've been very uh, cordial to indulge me, and I appreciate your willingness to put up with my logoria. Thank you, one and all uh, in the audience, for uh, listening carefully. I appreciate it, too. Cheers. Yeah, yeah.